I'm planning on recording and I'm like, this is so different than years past where I was like, boy, I got to have an angle on the Texans for the show. So people know what's going on. And like, like, like I had a clue on that regardless. So like, it's, it's very refreshing. I'd encourage more people to try it, to be honest. Hey everybody, welcome to Props and Hops, a betting and beer podcast powered by Dimers.com and part of Blue Wire Hustle. I'm Matt Landis and this week's episode is part one of two from my recent comprehensive conversation with NFL handicapper Adam Chernoff. Odds are if you're listening to this, you know Adam's work from his podcast, The Simple Handicap, but we touch on some things you probably don't know about him, getting into his fascinating background, including overcoming cancer at a young age, and spending a decade living in Central America and the Caribbean, working on both sides of the counter. So it's safe to say Adam's living a full life beyond betting, and that extends to the hops, so you better believe we talk about the local beer scene in his neck of the woods up in Alberta, Canada. Of course, the NFL betting side of things is a focal point of our conversation, so we touch on his process and the power ratings he uses, including why he goes with a range instead of one number when power rating teams. We also touch on how Adam looks to maximize edges, including his approach to the futures market as well as bet sizing. And we wrap up the NFL betting portion of the conversation by discussing the value of embracing uncertainty. Quick housekeeping note before we cut to the interview, for free picks driven by analytics and thousands of simulations, check out the cutting edge quick picks section at dimers.com. You can find a link in the show notes, so go ahead and see where you want to get down on the Dimerspot's biggest edges across all the biggest sports. And now, enjoy part one of my conversation with NFL handicapper and an all-around fascinating person, Adam Chernoff. Good morning, everyone. Props and hops for Tuesday, July 27th. Thank you for making me part of your morning. 43 days away from the NFL season kicking off in Tampa Bay, where the defending Super Bowl champs will take on the Dallas Cowboys. And if you couldn't tell by that intro, today's guest, the one and only Adam Chernoff. Adam, welcome to Props and Hops. Is it 43 or is it 50? If it's 43, I'm even more behind than I thought I was, but I've lost, I've lost count now. It's just a mad scramble to get there. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. We were at 50 last Tuesday, so uh, I, I guess just doing, doing the math there, when people are hearing this on Tuesday the 27th, we will be, yeah, just, just a touch more than six weeks out from real football and, and even sooner with preseason kicking off. The Hall of Fame game is like eight days away, it feels like. So it's I, I don't know where the summer went, but the summer is gone and falls basically here. So it's it's equally concerning and exciting. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally get that. I think a lot of listeners can feel the same sentiment. So there's plenty of football we can dig into, of course. But I think you have such a fascinating background beyond the mechanics of betting itself. So I'd love to cover a lot of ground in this conversation. And as a heads up to some listeners, you've done some really good interviews on other podcasts. So I want to make sure to uh, give those a quick shout out and and try to add to those conversations rather than get too repetitive. You went on back in 2017. You were, I believe, the fourth episode of the Business of Betting podcast. One of my favorites. Shout out to friend of the pod, Jake Williams. He's doing great work with that show. Also, you were on twice recently with Timothy Lawson on the Better Life podcast. So um, go ahead and check those out if you want to hear more of Adam's background. But I think we've got a fascinating story we can cover in this conversation. Um, Adam, I guess to start, I'll, I'll go to the beginning. It seems like you, you've lived quite a full life and uh, still plenty ahead for you. But you were diagnosed with leukemia as a young child, I believe. And I'm wondering if you could just share anything from that very early experience in life and kind of how that formed yeah. you and, and what you've taken from that big of an experience so early on. No one's ever gone that far back. Jake and Tim are awesome, but I don't even think they went that far back. Um, yeah, no, I, I honestly, I don't have that many memories of it, which is, I guess, probably a good thing in hindsight and sort of left that burden on the parents. But um, yeah, I had it when I was, I was pretty young. Um, got diagnosed right around, I was, I was about three and that was, I guess, in the early 90s. It's getting back there now. But um, there wasn't, there wasn't like a set treatment, I guess, for it. And so it was kind of like 
experimental or what have you at the time. And that it lasted about four years going back and forth through chemo and, and what have you. And it sort of stuck with me till like I was kind of like seven or eight. And I think sort of got the all good few years after that because there was some things that lagged on from it. But like, honestly, and I say it kind of jokingly, but the extent of what I really remember, there was um like in the waiting room, there was a nun. And she was like, the I don't know why, but Children's Hospital, whatever. And, um, and they had the original Mario on Super Nintendo. And it was like, it was a big deal for me to go to the hospital so I could play the original Mario on like the TV that they had set up. And so despite going there for spinal taps and chemo and radiation, what have you, like the thing that stands out was playing Mario in the waiting room with that nun. And so <laughs> think of that what you will, but it's, it's like so many things in my life where it's just really weird, unusual stuff comes from strange circumstances. And that was definitely one of them. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're able to take away some positive memories from, you know, such a big experience like that at such a young age. Um, yeah. Mario, I think you mentioned the original Mario, like that's about as good as it gets. As far as things have advanced, I know that you've got your finger on the pulse of technology and, and some other ways in, in the gaming space that we can touch on. But for all the systems out there and all the games now, there's a lot of cool stuff you can do. But just OG Mario, it, it doesn't get much oh. better than that. And and the, the coolest part that I came to appreciate now, and we'll maybe get into it, but what people don't realize was the first level of Mario, the original one, was planned so it could introduce you to every single thing you needed to know how to play the game within like the first 15 seconds. So it was like the greatest explainer video of everything. And as we get into the world of tech and there's uh, so many things going on, you're trying to get involved with new things. Like perfect example was the first real big video game that came out with Mario. And so that was, that's a fun fact that I don't, I don't know why I threw that in there, but that's just the tech side of me, I guess. Yeah, no, it's cool. It's awesome how intuitive they could make it in. And maybe that's why it, it can become so fascinating for somebody at such a young age. And then it really sticks with you. So a uh, part of it might be a little bit of um, like dual motivations for the game designers to, you know, really get people hooked in and to keep playing. I know that, you know, works on the gambling side of things as well. But yeah, don't have a soft spot um, for any other games the way I do for Mario. So Love that story. Uh, really fond memories, at least you're able to take from that experience. And some other fond memories you might have from an experience that um, a lot of people might be interested to hear about. Fast forwarding a few years, you spent about a decade in the Caribbean and Central America. I think it was, what, roughly 2007 to 2017 or so. So I'd be curious if you could describe your experience there, working on both sides of the counter, having some really unique life experience outside of betting. And yeah, just maybe a bit of an overview on that and how it shaped you both as a better and more broadly as a person. Yeah. So I was in the late stages of high school and like I was, I was really, I'll skip the whole high school story, but there was like a pressure on me to travel and cause I was going to be the one guy in a graduating class of, a uh, little more than a dozen people that was going to travel abroad. And like in the small town I grew up in, like nobody travels, nobody goes anywhere. And so it was like the pressure was on, right? So everyone was waiting to see where I went. And the the place I originally had planned got canceled, like really late, right before I was going to fly. And so it was like basically a scramble to prove or to prove that I wasn't just having these high hopes and not <laughs> follow through with them. And I ended up in the Dominican Republic and I was already a couple years into like betting per se with the writing and work I was doing elsewhere and, and placing a little bit of money on games. And so I, I didn't realize what I was getting into going to the Dominican and the availability of sports betting and everything within it. And it was just like, I think back on the last 13 years, basically, and every single circumstance was just, right place, right time, and just complete luck that everything fell into place and worked out. And so uh, I spent a little over four years in the Dominican, right in Punta Cana. I spent a little more than four years in Colombia. And between there, it was trips to Trinidad and Tobago, where I was for a little bit. And then I was bookmaking for a company out of the Bahamas for about five football seasons. And yeah, definitely everything that I really learned about betting came from there. 
learned the business, both sides of it, went through a ton of things and just like a very unofficial education of sorts, which came through a just a wild series of failures. And and from that, strangely enough, it's led me to probably my home for the next very long while uh, where I am, but it sort of kept me going through the industry. So it was, it was, again, just learning through failure and it got me to sort of where I am today in a pretty good spot. So it's kind of unique in that aspect, but in, in terms of, in terms of sort of what I learned from that outside of just really like nuts and bolts of betting is just don't be afraid to try stuff. And I, I've tried so much stuff that's never worked, but like it gets you so much further. And so that's really what I've taken from that. But yeah, it was about, about a decade spent bouncing around between islands and countries. Jeez. Yeah, that seems like a good way to your point. Um, maybe the, the kind of informal education that a lot of people can't get. I mean, even right now, if you go back to the same place, to your point, the time was also such a critical component of it. Um, so I'm curious as to how that has also maybe shaped your current approach to betting. If we fast forward to present day, what sports do you tend to bet? And what's your level of involvement these days when you look at the betting board? Are there obviously the NFL, any other sports or any certain uh, angles that you've really gotten more into uh when we think about your approach in 2021 so it's a weird time i guess because in october of last year and it was so this was like i don't know six months ish into sort of the whole shutdown and pandemic and what have you and um we were living my wife and i in the big city here in alberta calgary um and we had our condo on the south side of the city and we were just like, we were just full on city people. So I've never been like a big city person ever. And so we were like sitting there and I'm like 12, 13, whatever years it is into just sort of scrambling around betting, booking, writing, everything, just sort of doing well, but just like no real like thought about the future. And it sort of like hit us when like sports shut down, whatever it was last March now. And there was like all that free time in like May and June and July to just kind of do whatever you wanted. And we sort of realized at that point, like I'm doing all of this now and it's great, but like, what does it look like 10 years from now? What does it look like 20 years? from? And like, it was clear that it's not going to last forever. And it's been very fortunate to get us where we are today, but like, What's coming up next? And so there was kind of like a decision before last football season to, to look at that prospect and, and do something else. And so in October, I was invited down to a casino in downtown Las Vegas where I was actually given an offer to work on the bookmaking side of things for them. And everything was lined up and I really wanted to work for the company. They're new, they're progressive got along really well with all the staff, spent a day with them. It was awesome. But through November, December, January, it was this back and forth immigration battle where they were trying to get me allowed to come into the States as a legal worker. And it, it got to the point where it was like, okay, we can get you here, but you can't actually do this. You can't legally do this. And we can't have you in this part of it. So we're going to kind of make this hybrid sort of position where you're, and it just, it was really, I didn't want to be that guy because like they're new, they're progressing. And then like to have that sort of sitting on the side. So I was like, look, like it's, I'd love for it to work, but it's just, it's clear. It's not going to be the time. So it's not going to work out. And that was fine. We let it go. And so that was kind of like a wind out of the sails for sorts. Cause I was like, I've got all this betting. I'm doing all this content. Like, let's just stop it. Let's do this. We have something for the future with a company that's going to grow, it's going to do well. And it, it was kind of like the end of it. And it was almost like a relief that everything I had was kind of shutting down in a sense, because you can get to the channel in a bit. But um, and so that was it. So like, I was not going to bet at all this summer. I was not going to, I didn't have plans to bet on football. And because I was going to be down there. And so like, I stopped everything that I was doing, cashed out the accounts and shut down the channel, shut down the podcast. And like, that was it. And then with that not working out, I sort of was now sort of, I had nothing going on. And I remember doing the podcast with Tim and I was like, well, we're a week after I, I hit stop here. And like, I'm not doing anything yet. <laughs> I was doing, I was like, maybe go golf this afternoon. I don't know. But like, that was kind of it. And then again, just one of those weird things that happens in my life where it's odd timing 
and just weird circumstances, uh, ended up with a 25-year-old media company that's focused on betting here in Canada that a lot of folks are familiar with that's sort of in a, they were just bought out recently. And so there's a ton of room for them to maneuver and they haven't really made their move yet. And so they brought me on uh, late spring, early summer, and I've been in a product manager role with them, uh, navigating a few things for them, but in a really good spot with brilliant people around and just sort of resources and freedom to make something that really matters for users in the betting space. And so that sort of rejuvenated things a little bit. And so they wanted to bring back the podcast that I've been doing for the last couple of seasons. So that's coming back. And the only way I'm doing that is if I'm betting on football again. So now <laughs> it's a lot of money went to a new truck and some home stuff and a whole bunch of different things. But a lot of it now is going back into some of the accounts and firing those back up. And so um, in terms of like along in the process, I'm weeks behind where I usually am. But there's almost like a weird unforced freedom that's coming with that to where I am now that I'm just sort of starting to ramp up and really approaching things with an open mind for the first time in years where I was sort of convinced I have the answers and now I have very few, but we can sort of figure them out on air together. Yeah. Well, that is fascinating. Thank you for that level of insight into all you've had going on. It seems like things were really at a crossroads. Um, hopefully you're still, uh, in a position where at some point we can maybe watch a game with bets on the other side of the counter at a stadium swim one of these days. I'm in. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll have to figure that out maybe sometime this coming season. But um, a lot of what you touched on, I, I will uh, circle back to at certain points in the conversation. But when you mentioned the current state of your NFL prep, I know we're in late July right now. So people are starting to get pretty excited for preseason or, you know, like we said off the top, the, the countdown is on to regular season football. And one thing you do differently than pretty much anybody as far as I'm aware, is your power ratings, you have a range instead of using a specific number. Uh, I had the honor of a lifetime working with David Malinsky a few years ago, and he would do a specific number, but also a letter grade for confidence ratings. That seems uh, like a, a nice next level to take things to. I also know that from speaking with whale capper, Drew Dinsick, in last week's episode, he talked about his schedule matrix that he creates every year and the season being much more of an arc than just a, a linear progression. Or, you know, if you see a team perform one way, one week, that is not a guarantee of what you're going to get in future weeks. So I think between the way Dave approached things and what I just talked about with Drew and his scheduling matrix, it seems to tie in pretty nicely with the way that you look at teams through a range when you power rate them. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more to your perspective on the benefits of doing it that way versus using one specific number. This is wildly unprofessional, but before I, I've got burning answers for that, but can we do the hops part of this so I can open this? It's just, oh my I, goodness. I've got it sitting next to me and it's driving me nuts. Yeah. Let's call an audible. If you want to crack that open, then you have to tell me, tell me what it is. And then uh, we'll this on. can stay seamlessly without the edit because it was a smooth transition. So it is a Papa Bear Prairie Ale from... It's actually kind of a cool can, but it, it is from, there's a brewery here in Cochrane, Alberta, which is about, it's a small town. It's about 10 minutes. I live just outside of it. And it's like West of Calgary. So like right in the Rocky mountains. And I, I don't know when the brewery showed up, like it, living in the city, I'd never heard of it. And then I sort of moved out here. I'm now back in a really small town of like 1200 people sort of more comfortable for me. But and so there's this brewery in the middle of nowhere and like it's phenomenal stuff. They've got like five or six rotating seasonal type of things they've got going on and like blew me away. And I spent time in Vancouver, Canada, and there was like this brewery area. And so it was like a, an eight block by eight block spot where there were like 20 different breweries. And so you could literally walk this loop in a night and do like 13 different breweries, however far you can make it. And like you have what's claimed to be like this best ever craft beer. And it's the same in Seattle and Portland. They've all got the stuff and it's very similar. And like there was some great stuff. Don't get me wrong. But I don't know. There's like my thing with beer is that the environment you drink it in has an enormous impact on how good it tastes. So like Presidente, for example. 
in the Dominican Republic, it is the best thing ever. People say the best thing in Guinness in Ireland too, with the water, whatever it is. But then like, I have a Presidente here and I'm like, this is God awful. And then in Guinness, I love it. But like it's, it's certain times or Corona on a golf course tastes so much better than Corona anytime. But like these guys have captured wheat fields and cattle in, in a flavor in a can that's just phenomenal so like they've nailed that aspect more so than i think any of those places in vancouver it's like the highest ever ever did so that's that's the papa bear prairie ale from i don't even uh half hitch brewing company half yes. hitch all right i'll have to put that on the radar i i like the way you talked about first off just bigger picture thank you for getting this on the right track we will talk plenty of football and shame on me for not quickly checking before we hit record to see if you had something at the ready because yeah don't want to let that warm up anymore while it's in peak condition um i appreciate you cracking it open and giving us that description and i love that the you know playing to the strengths of where you are um you know you mentioned just something they do when they make this beer you're not going to get it anywhere else or if you're yeah Maybe if, if you're in Ireland, then you want to reach for a Guinness or, um, you know, just certain areas reaching for a certain beer. That environment, I am, I'm right there with you on that making all the difference. I mean, I had the pleasure of joining Sports Cheetah, Preston Johnson, on his show, Last Word Cheetah, about a week and a half ago when this episode drops. And somebody called in and asked about Natty Light. And I... I generally do not reach for that beer um, or, or anything really in the Anheuser-Busch InBev portfolio. But sure. my father-in-law's favorite beer is Natty Light, and he's, in the, uh, he's on the East Coast. We haven't seen each other for about a year and a half now, and it's, you know, next time we see each other, that first sip of Natty Light with him will probably be as good and enjoyable as any of the fanciest beers that I've had the time to enjoy during the pandemic. Uh, another one on top of that, same thing. When I was... Still in high school, my one of my really good friends, he's like, can you come help us pitch square bales? So like square hay bales with the twine just rips your hands apart. And it's just like, I wouldn't wish that on anyone, but everyone does it and they always ask for help. And so it's like a day of doing that in the field, chasing a pickup truck around, just covered and itchy and completely worn out. And the guys pulled like bush, just like straight blue can bush, white letters, like nothing, like the cheapest stuff you can buy out of a cooler and like just killed three or four of them. And it was just like the best thing ever. You go through that now, just sitting on like a patio, no chance in hell. Can I finish a can? But like at that moment, it's like, this is the best thing that I've ever had in my life. And it was just glorious, but it's, there's, there's truth to that. And I don't know if it gets captured enough in just beer in general. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, it's something that can just be magical. And I, I think of, um, there's a podcast I listen to called The Daily Stoic by Ryan Holiday, who's a pretty well-known author as well. And there's a saying he talks about once in a while that you never step in the same river twice. And that can go so deep, like so many, you know, different profound conversations can be had about a quote <laughs> like that. But I think with beer, it's like, even if you're having, you know, if you're having Natty Light one day in one place, it's, yeah, it's probably the same beer. The one thing I'll give Anheuser-Busch is that you can get any of their core beers anywhere in the world, and the consistency is remarkable. It really is something where you know what you're getting in one sense. But the environment, you know, what did you do leading up to it? How many beers in are you? That can affect how you perceive it. So oh, in that 100%. sense, it's like you never have the same beer twice, and it's fun to just follow that adventure over time. Yep, I couldn't agree more. Very well said. Awesome. Well, uh, maybe we can uh, weave in some more beer talk as you make progress on that can. I am. Uh, I typically would would have one with you. I uh, had my brother up last night, and we had um, a little bit too much fun. Nothing, Clean nothing got fridge. totally out of hand. But <laughs> yeah, we uh, yeah we made a, a bigger dent in the supply than expected. So um, I'm sure we will be sharing a beer before too long. But I'm trying to uh, get everything back in the in the proper mindset and uh -huh. um yeah just in recovery mode a little bit but it's it's fun once in a while i think something that you said last year on your podcast there was one weekend where you were able to see some friends and just break away and sometimes if it's you know you're with friends and family and um you can just i think you talked about acting like a kid again and just you know that was kind of um you know having my brother up last night just having a good time breaking away from 
you know, all the other commitments in life. So I, I appreciate that you bring that perspective to the space. Maybe this can work us back into the betting side of things, um, knowing that it can be a grind for anybody at any level. And even if you have the right process, when the results aren't going the way you want, then the grind can really get magnified. So um, how do you generally approach just like getting through those stretches? Have you gotten better? Do you think over time about knowing when to step away or, or how to process something where you can just sense that, um, okay, yeah, maybe there's always a bit of a sweat for a game or you always want your bets to win and it's disappointing when they lose, but do you have any any way of knowing like, all right, it's time to step back and yeah, I care about this, but I don't want to care too much about it. So that was a phenomenal pivot, but watch me take the segue all the way back around. And my answer to that would be relying on the ratings that you create. So like you said, you mentioned Dave, I think we'll have like a, a comment on him in a second, but the, the one sure. thing that uh, Drew does that I, he, well, they do him and Andy do awesome stuff all the time. And now that Drew's on 40 different networks every single day, you can see him. And I think everyone appreciates the work he does, but um he, he always talked about the theory of 10 3 3. It's like 16 games. I don't know if it changes to 10 4 3 this year, if he's going to adjust that. But like you mentioned, where he said that it was, you, you don't expect a certain performance week after week. And so his theory is that teams will play 10 games to their true selves, and then they'll play three way over expectation and three way under expectation. And so when it comes to NFL and sort of the weekly nature of the sport, not only is it like not getting down on yourself and sort of understanding what happened, but then the second part would be not overreacting to what you're reacting to, if that makes sense and taking it too far and affecting the numbers that you make on a weekly basis. And so like you mentioned, I use ranges for my power ratings and um, we can dive into those, but like, I, I don't know if I've gotten better necessarily. I feel like I've become less detached emotionally, like very like swing wise, like health wise even. So like when it, when I was like, I think back to 10, 12 years ago and like there was a very small amount of money in the bank account and most of it was on games for Sunday. Cause that's all a guy had like, that really gets to you, but you get to a certain point if you're successful where there's like a comfort that comes with like, okay, you lose as much as I did last season and I'm not on the street holding a hat, so to speak. And like, so that helps a little bit. So like, I'd say like, I'm a little more comfortable in that aspect, but like, it's hard. Like when you're just losing week after week, especially in the NFL where losing streaks go sometimes a month or two. And that's only represents four to six weeks. Like it's, I don't know if anyone ever gets, really good at just avoiding that and putting it on the side but the key is not overreacting to your initial reaction to how you see games playing out yeah i think that that's a really nice way to frame it and it's great that you've shared this pretty widely recently on twitter doing some polls with your followers to see what kind of ranges they would bucket teams into and i'm curious from having done this it's been fun to vote and i think i voted in all of them and see Sometimes it's like, oh, of course, my answer is what everybody would say. Like, duh, that's the right answer. That's why I think it. Other times, being really surprised to see that I, I could be pretty high or low on a team. And you're getting a lot of feedback from people along those lines. So have there been any results that have surprised you? And um, maybe some some things have just been surprising, and that's interesting enough. But I'm wondering if you've even found anything from, the, from that that you'd consider actionable when it comes to how you might look to bet this coming season. Sure. Uh, so like, let, let me frame the sort of method quickly. So my theory is that everybody is better at talking about betting when they're not talking about betting. And so the point it was, the, the polls could be viewed two ways. At first it was like an experiment to me to be like, is this actually true? And it was really quite accurate. And the second was just like a curiosity on how people sort of looked at it. But if, if you take out a piece of paper and on one side of the piece of paper, you put a zero and on the other side, you put a hundred and then you can put ticks every 10, whatever it is. If zero represents the worst NFL team that's ever played in the league, say Dolphins, Lions of 10, 12 years ago, whatever it is. And like the best can be a hundred best team ever. So Pats in 07 or whatever, the Bears in the 80s, 49ers, whatever you want to, whatever your interpretation of the best team ever, that's at 100. 
And when you're looking at the 32 teams this year, all you start doing is plotting where they lie within that spectrum of zero to 100. So it's probably unlikely that we have the best team in NFL history playing this year. And it's probably unlikely, as bad as the Texans might be, that we have the worst team ever in NFL history playing in the league this year. So you're probably not going to have teams at zero, and you're probably not going to have teams at 100. Kansas City came in at a 90 on the collective vote, which I would agree with. So you put them at a 90, and Houston came in 15 to 20. So they're on the other side of it. So you have now just by putting those two teams, which I don't think anyone listening is going to necessarily disagree with, you just, you just plot your way between putting all the teams where you think that they're ultimately going to lie. And what you realize in doing this is when you just pull everything back and you're just saying, does this look right? And do these teams belong in this order? Does it make sense? If you get to a point when you have like the New Orleans Saints behind, I don't know, the Jacksonville Jaguars on one side, you're going to be like, well, that doesn't look right. Like, where does it belong? And you just do this exercise and then you look at it and you have all these teams plotted from zero to a hundred in this case, between 15 and 90. And then if we have that context of all those teams plotted and you're wondering how this relates to betting, if you look at the zero to a hundred as the widest range or the highest point spread we can be. So in other words, if, if the Kansas city chiefs played the Houston Texans, what would that point spread be versus some of the biggest point spreads in NFL history, 23, 24, 25, all of a sudden the amount of the scale that the team represents becomes the amount of that historic point spread or the league range that they represent. So if the league range is 24 and you have a team at an 80, that's 80% of the 24 is their proportion of a point spread. And if they're playing a 20, then it's 20% of the 24. And then the difference is what the point spread is. And why I think this is more valuable is because where people really struggle with power ratings, and this is more so the average better or slightly above average better, which is sort of where my content tends to tailor towards. Um, when you, it's great and easy to set it week one, right? But then come Sunday afternoon of week one, all of a sudden you have all these crazy results happening. And when you're working on a point spread basis, most people can't relate to a point spread like they can best of all time, worst of all time. If I say minus seven versus plus three, that's a lot more difficult to grasp and contextualize for most people than uh, 60 versus a 30 or one like 60% of the greatest team versus 30% of the greatest team, basically right around the averages, Right. And when you're thinking about it in that sense, when you're moving these teams every week after the results and you're seeing where all the other teams are, it becomes really easy not to make glaring mistakes like a lot of people would when they're moving around point spread numbers and trying to sort of facilitate what they saw on the screen and where that affects the ratings. And so what I found doing it using this method is it's a lot easier, again, not to really overreact to those initial reactions of the scoreboards, but then keep everything in line over the course of the season as you go week to week. Cause that's really where people struggle. And if you always have it in context of best team ever, worst team ever, and then find the average from in there, it, it tends to be a lot easier to maneuver and you don't have to be so exact. Uh, and then you get off and you can actually make pretty decent numbers or at least numbers that help you recognize why what you're looking at at your sports book is what it is. So that's, that's the method and why I think it works and why people could probably benefit from thinking that way. Yeah. I think that's a really strong framework and that can help you identify some edges to then go ahead and bet into. And I wanted to talk about betting into edges at this time of year, specifically knowing that, um, in some cases we're betting into markets that might have bankroll tied up for six months, or um, we just haven't seen anybody play it. So there's a lot of uncertainty and that can breed opportunity, but it can also get people maybe a little bit too excited. You don't want to feel uh, too ambitious and, and getting overextended while betting. So as we talk about a few things along those lines, I'd love to first think of something at, at your level of betting. Um, I'm sure you've had spots where maybe you have an angle that you can exploit. Say you have one account that's just off market in 
whether it's a line for a game or a certain prop that they tend to list week after week at a favorable price is a better. Do you take the approach of, hey, every edge dries up given enough time, so I'm going to make hay while the sun shines? Or do you try to slow play things a little bit so that you're you're chipping away at it, but you're also reducing your risk of getting limited or kicked out and losing access to that edge altogether? My answer to that's largely influenced by the fact that I'm Canadian and having accounts and betting at places is a lot easier. Well, I guess I, I would say avoiding being limited per se, like the rate that some of the folks are in the regulated markets within the U S are, it's a lot easier to overcome here than it is being in the States. And so when it comes to, I, I would say that my access to finding those edges because of the books for which we bet at from here primarily has been lesser than someone else that might be listening to this from the Northeastern United States or sort of like the, the credit hotspots and areas where there's lots of locals that you can get down with. Um, so it's different in that regard, but um, it's not, it's not like, especially in the preseason stuff, I don't push too hard to find and bet and tie up a lot of stuff specifically, but it's just, it's a problem that, being where I have been geographically has not nearly been as big as others. So if I'm seeing something, I'm betting it and I'm not super worried about the consequences that come from that. Like other people are. Got it. And if you were in a spot where that could be more consequential, maybe the, the typical person listening to this with their access in the U S would you approach it much differently? Is there any advice you would share with somebody? Like I, I know, um, something I talked about last week, David Malinsky would have referred to it as a meal ticket, just one of these angles that was consistently cashing um, at a book that was just low on the odds for shortest touchdown under one and a half yards. It seems really precise, but it happens more than you might think without digging into the numbers. And sure. they just had such a cheap price. And there are things like that, that, you know, those come and go. And if somebody's on the eye out for it and they come across one with one of their accounts and it's more typical with the U.S. level of betting access. Would that change your approach to situations like that? No, just keep I, – I mean, you have to look at it. I'm not going to be the expert on longevity of accounts for local credit books. Uh, that's not me. But, like, just in general, like, I can think of one, a team to score in every quarter. has been a prop market that's been notoriously mispriced for, like, years. And you can – where you can find it, you can beat it to death – and like, if you're finding, usually it's going to be offered by like the bigger sort of more corporate books, like a bet 365 or things along those lines up here. And like that account value initially is, is only so high and you, it's only going to last so long. Like you can get limited for so many different things with them. And so you, while you have it, do it. Cause if you're not doing it for that specific angle, and you have other ones, you're going to get tags for those as well. And so it's like you, you have to think about the longevity for a sense if you're really limited on where you can play and you only have so many options. But again, like if you think about it in that regard and you're in a place like New Jersey and you're not a huge better and you've got 20 different places you can go with, if one of them's hanging at something that you can take advantage of, do it because they're either going to get you for that or they're going to get you for something else in the future. So it's like, you have to think about it sort of in that sense. But I mean, it, nobody's looking up for anyone in this sense. There's people on Twitter, they'll talk about honor and this and that. And there's maybe truth to be said about just having a local and he's offering you a credit line and he's misposting something and you're just smashing it because you know that it's intentionally wrong. And like, if you want to do that, fine. There's maybe something to be said about letting him know and fixing that form and getting the account extended longer, having that sort of good relationship with them, which is as important. But like, if you're betting with these huge corporate places, just, and you see something you smash it because they're either going to get you for that or you'll get limited somewhere else if you're good enough shortly in the future. So just, it really depends on the, the circumstances. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. And I'd also like to touch on um, keeping with the theme of the betting market at this time of year, some futures that, might have a lot of value, but might also require tie up bankroll for a while. And I'd love to get your approach on that. Um, first off, props to Circa for hanging a two-way market on MVP odds, so you can bet yes or no. And when I first saw them post their MVP lines, 
I saw Kyler Murray, yes, was plus 850. And I'm like, okay, that's a lot of love for Kyler Murray. And there are no price, you know, they, they baked in a healthy house take, of course, but you can still bet no at 15 to one. And that's a lot of VIG to lay. But I, I would think that that should be closer to, you know, 30 to one. Or I, I, I think there's still some healthy value there. But we have to consider the edge against the opportunity cost. And somewhere in a thread um, where I was communicating on Twitter with uh, Jeff Benson over at Circa, somebody had a comment that there's nothing wrong with tying up money for six months. Rome wasn't built overnight. And I, I didn't want to oversimplify things and just completely agree. And I also didn't want to disagree in a way that was off-putting. I think there's a lot of nuance here that's tough to fit into the character confines of a tweet. So basically, yeah, in, in some cases, go ahead and tie up bankroll. And others, um, I think like most questions, it, it depends on a variety of factors. And bankroll utility comes to mind. So we're all working with finite resources to an extent. Some people have more finite bankrolls than others. But when you're staking money for six months or more, that's going to have an impact possibly on how you can bet while that wager is pending. And if that's too great of an impact, then that you know obviously makes this a huge consideration. So when we're talking a 15 to one, no bet on Kyler Murray, like that's a lot different than fronting a little to possibly win a lot on a, on a juicy sure. future. If you're, if you're fronting 15 to one for, you know, a healthy size bet, that's going to be a lot that you're tying up for several months. So when you think about the ROI versus the alternatives, I think Rob Pizzola and Johnny from Betstamp has, have done a good job talking about this on the Circles Off podcast. But I, I think even if you have a good bet, like this Kyler Murray 15 to one example with the no, I, I think it has value if you could bet it and get it graded tomorrow. That would be great. But within this reality, even if it is as good of a bet as I think it is, you're still giving the book an interest-free loan for a single-digit ROI. And that's, again, assuming that it's not going to lose, which that's on the table. So there are other ways you can earn on that money over the course of six months. So I guess a long-winded way of just trying to lay out some context. Um, when you see futures that are interesting, how do you equate the expected value of that bet versus the opportunity cost of tying up that bankroll possibly for six plus months. Yeah. How much money do you have? <laughs> I mean, that's really the long and short of it. Like if that's, you might have the, like you said, like a, an enormous edge on that, but if it's all of the money you have and you're risking 30 or 60 K to win a few thousand bucks, like what is that going to get you? And like, what does that look like versus what you could potentially do during the season? So that that's exactly it for me. Like I, I rarely, especially going to like prices of that extreme. I don't think to the top of my head, I've ever placed a bet like that. That's a season long wager of that anywhere close to that price. I've placed season long futures occasionally that like you said, have the bigger payout because I'm not tying up that much and it supports a really strong opinion I have and I see a price that makes it worthwhile and that's great and I get a big return from it potentially at the end but yeah going the other way I, I don't know how like you you've got to have a lot of resources to be able to justify it and that's certainly not me and so that's it's not an avenue that I tend to go down too often yeah I I love hearing that from your perspective again I, I understand um, this person commenting with nothing wrong tying up money for six months Rome wasn't built overnight. Again, that quote, I'm like, in some cases, yeah, I get it, but it's it's not always that cut and dry. So um, yeah, I appreciate you sharing some perspective there. And while we're continuing to talk, you know, betting leading up to the football season, I'd love to also touch on bet sizing. I know like there's, you know, different schools of thought of flat betting more or less or betting according to your perceived edge. And when you're betting according to your perceived edge, I know that can be both an art and a science. So you want to avoid overextending yourself, but at the same time, maximize edges where you have them. So what's your approach to bet sizing when you're looking at the NFL boards? I, I tend to believe that any edge that I think that I might have is not nearly as big as what I think that it ultimately is. And that sort of got me back to the idea of, of flat betting more. And I keep things pretty consistent and People who, who value the math are going to disagree with that. And there was a time where I was very much varying it game by game, stake by stake and, and following different methods and, and varying. And like it, when, you, when things are running well, it, it looks phenomenal. When things are going poorly, it, it doesn't look so good. And that's same can be said for flat betting. But like if, 
if you, if you truly believe that you can define your edge that well and that you can time everything as well as you think you can, then obviously varying the stake is going to be the way you want to go. If you have any doubts around that whatsoever, then it's very hard to justify not flat betting everything that you do. And so I've come to the conclusion that I'm not nearly as good as I think that I am. And my numbers are not anywhere close to as good as I once thought they were. And that's in itself alone to just bring me back towards flat betting because, and it's not to say that times where I think my edge is smaller, it's actually much larger. That's another aspect to it too. It goes both ways. Right. And so if, if you're not able to truly be fully confident about how you're defining what your edge ultimately is, then it's really hard to say you shouldn't be flat betting. Yeah. I think what you just touched on reminded me that you know, a lot of people mentioned how much confidence is required to bet anything in general. I mean, you know, walking in that the odds are stacked against you with generally risking 110 to 100. And at the same time, well, you need to be confident if you're going to be a good better and just make it through the grind over time. I love that element of humility and understanding that I might think my edge is this big, but it's probably not. Having healthy market respect can go a long way. And again, I know we'll talk more about him later, but as, as you outlined that, it reminded me of what David Malinsky would say. He often talked about what I think of as a, a four, five, six bet sizing scale where a multiple of five is your standard unit. And the standard unit size for an NFL point spread bet can be very different from what you're betting if you're doing props or teasers or other sports. But within, within whatever you've defined that standard unit to be, if something is bettable, then it's worth at least a four or eight tenths of a unit. But edges are almost never big enough that you should go beyond a six, which would be a 1.2 unit play. And maybe if we're talking about the NFL draft or Super Bowl props, like there are some cases where you can get outside of that framework. Yeah. But I think it, it's great. There are so many examples of just crazy things happen. And I love the humility that you express in your answer, because sometimes just there are things that we have no way of anticipating, or even when we feel highly confident in something, there's still a lot of variance in play. So like, yeah, we want to maximize our edges and strike while the iron's hot. But at the same time, if you're not, really really sure how big that edge truly is then staying within that four or five six framework um for a lot of betters i'd say is probably a healthy approach to make things hold up um as well as they can over time there was that tweet from las vegas chris lvc and he was talking about like half point differentials to his contest winnings i can't remember if there's a time frame to it but it was like if games would have gone a half point or like games where he won by a half point, if it would have been a half point the other way, it would have cost him like X amount of hundreds of thousands of dollars. And if, because they went that specific way, the half point to the other side, he made X hundred thousand of dollars. And like when it comes to NFL, like, yeah, it's variance to the max with a lot of these things. And so like, like you it is very tough to justify that an NFL market is wrong by a substantial margin that you should be just wildly disproportionately staking what you would do on other things, like you said. So couldn't agree more. Yeah. It's a tricky balance because I think the way you said that, you know, your edges, you've come to realize they're not as big as you once thought they yeah, were. And even, <laughs> and even Rob again on circles offset in a recent episode, like if he doesn't have an edge of, I think it was one and a half percent. If if he shows an edge, but it's not at least one and a half percent, then he's still not going to bet it, even if his numbers say to do so, because he knows that his numbers aren't the you know one hundred percent source of truth. So you want to bake in a bit of a buffer. And at the same time, on the other end of the spectrum, if you think your edge is so big, then to your point, when we're talking about a market as efficient as the NFL, your edge probably isn't that big, and you should probably go look at the process because the market way more often than not is is going to be more efficient than any one model. So you need enough of an edge to get in play. But if you think you see too big of an edge, you should probably think again, because because those edges are few and far between. Yeah, And it goes back to like the the point spread ratings that I was laying out in that process. Like you'll hear during the course of the season, someone go on a show and they'll be like the wrong team is favored. And it's like a three point favorite that they're justifying should be three on the other side. And it's like, if you think that it's that far off, 
and you go and you you lay out this zero to a hundred scale and you plot all the teams and you have to and like and you're looking at it and you're like okay here's where it is now I have to move this team from like a sixty to an eighty five to justify what I'm saying out loud should be the point spread and then you see that you're moving this average team to the same level that Kansas City and Tampa Bay and Buffalo are all on. And you and like nobody once they see that can be like, yeah, that makes sense. Like it never ever does. And so it sort of ties all back together. Whereas if you're doing that and it's just like that easier way to talk and think about how you rate these teams. If you do that and you have it laid out, like it just starts to make sense and you're like, yeah, it can't I I'm I'm way off on this one, which is fine cuz you you're going to have those spots, but like it just kind of keeps you honest in a way when you're doing it. Yeah. Yeah. At a certain point, like you need enough of an edge to get in play, but if your edge is too big, then maybe you need to stay away because there could very well be something you're missing. So I think it's, it's important to have um, the ability to, you know, build a good process and, and be confident in what you're doing, but not overconfident. Uh, And so with that in mind, knowing there's plenty of variants that we're about to embrace as the season kicks off pretty soon here, are there, any bets or angles that stand out as you've started to do your 2021 prep? I know you said it's a little behind where it would typically be, but um, and not so much trying to grab picks from you right now, but if, if there is a pick or an angle, more interested in the process behind it, trying to um, help the audience develop the process of, you know, what it's like to, to think along the lines of a winning better. I got nothing. And that's a terrible podcast answer, but in terms of like a pick, I have, I have nothing at this point. I have, and this is going to be the theme of the show once it starts up tomorrow. There's going to be a lot of, I don't know, but let's talk about it. And so last year I was incredibly wrong on the effect that the lack of crowd noise would have on the teams. And so like we saw every quarterback all of a sudden able to audible without issues, offenses getting off the ball incredibly quick, and like the play calling and communication that drove the spike in scoring for like the, it was ridiculous. And so like way over my, I don't, and I feel like an idiot for missing it, but like that was blatantly obvious. And so like we saw the average total last year was like 49 and a half, 49 and three quarters, uh, which was obviously the highest of all time. But now does it fully revert? Does it partially revert? Are we like at this level where this is sort of like the offensive standard that's going to hold? We're obviously back to crowd noise. Is that going to have an impact? So like, what does that ultimately look like on games and totals? Um, Something I think that is often overlooked or missed within previews in general for NFL is where were we on teams a year ago? This year is, I feel like I've heard significantly more about injury luck and scores or results in one score games and lots of stuff like that, that sort of tells you what a team did last year. But like, we almost forget to an extent what we were thinking about these teams a year ago going into it. So like we have those results based sort of contextual pieces that we take away from it, but we sort of lose the idea of what the team was. And with that being such of like an outlying season for how it was played, um, the sort of like arc of where we thought these teams were within sort of their current status is kind of, I feel disconnected from what is being sort of shoved out in a lot of these preview podcasts and magazines and things of that nature. And so I think, having that extra little element of context beyond just like the results in those games or the win expectation of what they had last year, all very important and certainly true. But like, I think there's a little bit more to that this year that's going to matter. So I'm really uncertain about like the, the game in general and the changes we're going to see from things coming back and how quickly things are to change. Last year was within two to three weeks. We're basically at the prices where the averages finished for the year. So it's like, what's going to happen there and then sort of are we thinking about things very differently than maybe we did two seasons ago with that being such an outlier season and a lot of really weird numbers coming from that so it's that's sort of where my head's at and I don't know if that necessarily leads for, to an angle for people to work on but 
Um, that's that's just sort of like the couple of things that I'm thinking about at like a really high level for the league. Yeah, well, you said that this was going to be a bad podcast answer, but I love it because I think there's a lot to be said for I mean, just saying that you don't know the answer to something. Uh, just uh, in general in life, I feel like if more people were willing to say, I don't know, then we could be uh, maybe in a much better place in a lot of different areas. But not just being uncertain, but knowing what you're looking for and laying out the factors that you did. I think we can, you know, we can learn a lot and and that can mean being quicker to figure it out and work toward an accurate answer as we start to see some games and the season gets unfolding. So I again, I really like that. It reminds me of a friend of mine, Christopher Harris. I had him on this, uh, I think it was February or March, right after the season. I'll bring him back on. He's a fantasy football expert and he's talking to people right now on his podcast about what they need to see in August that will change their mind on certain players, knowing that a lot of the industry is, you know, we have average draft positions for so many guys right now. And, and everybody's trying to say, okay, this player is this good and you should draft him ahead of player X, Y, Z. And like, okay, it's good to, you know, start having a, a sense of which guys you're high on or low on and, and how you value players. But at the same time, a lot's going to change. And even if we think, Again, whether we think a spread is right or wrong, or we think a player in fantasy is overvalued or undervalued, like a lot can change. And I think just having an eye on specific factors, not being so worried about what everybody else is saying, but just knowing, hey, I'm going to have an eye on these few things in the next few weeks. And I don't know what the answer is going to be right now, but I know that by paying attention to these things, that will inform my approach as the season picks up. And that can lead to edges that, we don't have a way of knowing about right now, but it doesn't mean they're not going to be there down the road by honing in on the right things. Oh, and this it's brutally refreshing. Like I feel great. I've done very little prep, but I feel phenomenal. Cause it's like for so many years, I was like, I had to be certain. And like the more prep I did, the more I was ready to go. And it, it, like three years ago, I wrote like 80 some pages of text and word about like, depth charts and like backup players and stuff. And it was just like, like what the hell was I doing? Like it was too much. And just now this year I'm going into it and I'm like, just a lot of this, like, I don't like, wh what am I going to take truly away in August? that's going to impact how I bet from September to January. Like something, something could happen in week seven that changes what I think about week eight. If I'm looking at August and preseason to define how I'm doing it for the season, like, I, my head's going to explode with information and thoughts and stuff like that. So like just approaching it from a just general position of uncertainty is, is very new for me, but it, it's so much less stressful and it's really good. Like I'm doing a Texans preview tomorrow to kick off the start. And I'm like, here's a bunch of reasons why I think they might go under, but here's actually a couple of very logical reasons why they might go over I'm not betting it. You probably shouldn't either, but like, this is interesting to think about. And like, I'm planning on recording and I'm like, this is so different than years past where I was like, boy, I got to have an angle on the Texans for the show. So people know what's going on. And like, like, like I had a clue on that regardless. So like, it's, it's very refreshing. I'd encourage more people to try it, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Just being willing to say, Hey, it's like, we're all, we have more or less the same access to the same information. I don't need to fabricate a hot take to, you know, to try to sway anybody, especially when they might be spending money on it. It's sure. just, okay, here are the Texans. And I, I like your example of laying out a case for both sides on the win total. Um, recent guest Cleve TA did just that for the sharp football 2021 NFL preview book. His, his primary task was just to outline why all 32 teams could go over and why they could go under. And I think more betters would benefit by, you know, just using that thought process behind any bet. Like if I'm about to bet, you know, the chiefs minus three against the bills, or whatever the line might be, try to make the case the other way. And if you can make a really compelling case, maybe that keeps you off of a bet and you're not forcing your hands. And if you struggle to make the case, then that can, you know, reinforce things again, it, you need to have a lot of humility here, but if that adds to your confidence then you know, carry on with the wager, but looking at both sides of the coin, you know, whether it changes how you approach any specific bet, just trying to work that into the process behind every bet. Like if only once in a while it impacts anything 
concretely, just mentally having that approach. I, I like how you said it's refreshing and less stressful. And also I think it is a way to work, you know, closer to the truth rather than just oversimplifying things or, or maybe feigning confidence for the sake of just doing that. Yeah. And I'm kind of mad at myself because the point of the show that I started in 2017, the simple handicap was from an article I wrote for pinnacle when I was writing for them. And the point of the show was that there's so much noise and unnecessary information that we consume. Like if you just talk to an average better, they can rattle off trends and stats and everything like that. But then if you're like, why will this team win the game? Like very few betters will immediately jump and give you like a one or two sentence answer about the game itself and why the team is going to win. And so the point of the show and why the episodes were so short and they're still only 10, 12 minutes, whatever they are, but like the simple handicap process was about breaking every single game on the board every day down to team A will win because team B will win because, and then team A will try to do this and team B will try to do this. And that's all it was. So like when I first started and nobody was listening to it, it was just me rattling off the games on the board, talking about the odds. And then my analysis would just be that. And it would be like one or two sentences. And I listened back to stuff I did, like the VSIN thing I did in the playoffs. I talked for like six minutes without stopping and just rattled off the most absurd stats ever. It looked good because it worked. But I'm like, none of this stuff truly matters to what's going on. And like the fact that I just couldn't do that, like I wrote about and produced hundreds of episodes on, like was just lost sort of along the way. And I got a text from a really big better in the U.S. Um, and we talk a lot about golf and we go back and forth. But he, he sent me a text. We we're talking about football. And it sort of gets back to the point you were making about T.A., who's brilliant. I love his stuff that he's doing with. I'm glad he's doing more and I'm glad people like you are having him on. But the text I got from him and it was prephrased as this is a compliment, not an insult. But he said, if you were a medical doctor, I would be very concerned for your patients, but I'm certain that you would at least try really, really hard to help them with whatever their issue was. And the point that he was trying to make was I'm like really good at thinking differently and exploring lots of different avenues but with 95% of the stuff I do, I just wildly overcomplicate it when it really comes down to a case of there being a valid answer for both sides. And you just needing to like relax and take a step back and just think about both sides. And there's your answer rather than going on this crazy sort of roundabout way of trying to come to a bet. And so I think what he did in the book was brilliant. I think more people need to do it. And I think, I think it was Dr. Bob, the handicapper, famous handicapper, California guy too. Um, as was this better that was texting me. Um, but I think it was Dr. Bob. He said the best handicappers are able to make a valid case for both sides at every time. And there's truth to that. So I couldn't agree more. I used to be very good at that. And I, I don't know where I got lost along the way, but um, guys like TA and Dr. Bob, whoever had that quote, were certainly spot on with that approach. Yeah. Well, I think it can come and go. It's not necessarily something that, I think a lot of people lose it's just as, as life comes up and, you know, we just had a pandemic turn things sideways. Like sometimes there's just an ebb and flow to everything, but it's, it sounds like you're in a, a nice, really clear place as you start to do your prep for the season. And it's maybe it's a good thing that you, you're not, you know, too far along at this point because just coming at it from a, a cleaner slate and, and looking to, again, keeping in mind the, the simplicity, the simple handicap that yeah. not only is it, I think, more relatable to a lot of betters, but often it can just be a more efficient way to get, you know, most of the value that you might hear. Again, I know that we're, we're going on a little North of an hour already, but most of the value that people will get in a podcast that's an hour plus, they can still get it in 10, 12 minutes when, when you just frame it the right way. So I, I don't think there's anything wrong with, um, you know, trying to keep it simple and almost being more of a minimalist in that sense versus just throwing out to your point, like every stat, you know, it can sound smart, but really focusing on sifting through the noise and just trying to find the signal. And oftentimes the explanation for what really powers that signal breaking through the noise probably isn't 95% plus of what you hear everybody else talking about all week leading up to game day. Yep. Couldn't agree more. Goodbye. 
Alright, we'll leave it at that for now, but I'll be back next week with part two of my conversation with Adam. We'll do a deep dive on the betting content space. If you enjoyed this episode, the number one way you can support Props and Hops would be to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're interested in a real-time conversation with me and the Dimers.com community of more than 700 fellow bettors and counting, join us for free on Discord. I've dropped a link in the show notes. All right, that'll do it for this episode. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next week with part two of my conversation with Adam. And until then, let's bet well, let's drink well, and let's be well. Be well.